Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Good morning. It's Tuesday the 11th of July here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hebke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Coming up today, UK pension funds agree to pump billions into British startups as the Bank of England's Andrew Bailey raises hopes that the country's inflation problem is about to ease. And Turkey does a 180 to back Sweden's bid to join NATO in a big boost for the alliance. Plus, some big news for passive investors. The Nasdaq plans to rebalance the index away from an over-concentration in mega-cap tech. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. Nine of the UK's biggest pension funds have agreed to invest 5% of assets in their default funds into startups by 2030. Aviva, Legal and General, M&G and Phoenix have all committed to the move, which could unlock £50 billion for unlisted firms if the rest of the industry follows suit. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, insists that the plan isn't mandatory. We're not forcing anyone to invest anywhere they don't want to invest, but we want to remove the barriers so that they can have a a more balanced portfolio and therefore increase the returns to their own pension fund holders. In addition to the pensions deal, the Chancellor also announced plans to roll back parts of European Union legislation that forces financial firms to separate the cost of investment research from trading expenses. Well, the Chancellor wasn't the only one making news at the Mansion House dinner. The Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey used his speech to signal an expectation that inflation will continue to fall this year. Here's what he told the event. Looking ahead, UK headline inflation is set to fall markedly over the remainder of the year. This largely owes to lower energy prices as last year's substantial increases drop out of the annual calculation. But food prices should fall too as lower commodity prices feed through to prices in the shops. Andrew Bailey's comments come as data from the British Retail Consortium shows like-for-like food sales jumped by 9.8% in the second quarter. UK inflation has proved more persistent than in other major economies, with the 8.7% headline rate more than four times the Bank of England's 2% target. Turkey has agreed to support Sweden's bid to join NATO in a major breakthrough which could change the face of Europe's security. Turkey has been delaying its admission since last year. NATO Secretary-General Jen Stoltenberg hailed it as a key step forward for the military bloc. Completing Sweden's accession to NATO is an historic step that benefits the security of all NATO allies at this critical time. It makes us all stronger and safer. That was Jen Stoltenberg, who added that he expects Hungary, the only other NATO member yet to approve Sweden's bid, will follow suit. Now, the Nasdaq is expected to do something unprecedented and manually rebalance its index. Bloomberg's James Wilcock reports. 
When is too big not a good thing? Well, when you're one of the US's largest six tech companies, they fit a combined market cap of $10 trillion. For the Nasdaq, that's more than half the index, which breaks regulator rules, and the exchange is planning an intervention. In two weeks' time, it intends to pare back the weighting of its largest stocks. The heavyweights dropped on the news, reversing some of their gains from this year's AI boom. In London, James Wilcock, Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. And three Federal Reserve officials have come out in favour of more rate rises this year. Although the central bank skipped its last chance to hike, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly was one of those saying the risks of doing too little outweigh those of doing too much. We're likely to need a couple more rate hikes over the course of this year to really bring inflation back into a path that's along a sustainable 2% path. Daily, they're speaking in Washington. Meanwhile, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic has been an outlier, saying that the Fed can be patient and hold well into 2024. New inflation data out tomorrow may weigh on policymakers ahead of the next rate meeting in two weeks' time. Now, uh, when it comes to Wall Street banks, they face one of the biggest regulatory overhauls since the financial crisis. The Federal Reserve's top banking regulator, Michael Barr, is proposing lowering the threshold for new capital requirements to $100 billion in assets from $700 billion. These changes would raise market risk capital requirements by correcting for gaps in the current rules. For instance, the proposal would require banks to model market risk at the level of individual trading desks, which will better reflect the observation that correlation across risk can change dramatically in times of stress. The proposal would require banks to use a standardized approach for hard-to-model risk, which is appropriate in light of the weaknesses that were exposed in the 2008 financial crisis when many firms did not have acceptable models for their risks. The Fed's top regulator also argues that banks must set aside more of a cash cushion after recent failures. Now, JP Morgan, City and Wells Fargo all report earnings on Friday. Those are a few of our top stories this morning. The big question really is, Caroline, are you on thread yet? <laughs> I'm not, actually. I am not an Instagram-er, and so I have not joined threads. Having said that, I realise I'd better go on with it and do it today because, of course, they've topped 100 million users. There's a nice piece on the terminal, though, about how they're not expected to beat LinkedIn, or at least not for now, when it comes to job hunting. Who expected them to beat LinkedIn? I think LinkedIn is very professional. Instagram is very personal. And that's kind of the problem with threads. I just wish that you could port your Twitter followers over yes. to threads. If someone could create an app that would let you hack that, that would be perfect. Well, I mean, that's also what a lot of the career advisors do seem to be saying, actually create a separate Threads profile so that it's unique versus your Instagram followers, because otherwise um, it's not really going to work. And yet, of course, Threads apparently according to everyone who is looking at it in more depth. It's more, it's sort of both informational and also entertaining. I think that's immensely difficult to pull off for most people, isn't it? It's be- making my head spin, all the many number of profiles that we're meant to have. But I think the real question is, at what point are we going to draw a line in the sand and work out who's winning this race? I think it's too early to say that uh, who, who's ca- catching up whom. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I'm sure that somebody's got to, uh, some social media platform has got to die in order to make room. I mean, I've said it's it's too many inputs for one 
person to really keep track of properly. I mean, how many social media threads do you really want? Two, three, max? Yeah, surely? it's just not good for your mental health. But also, yeah. are you going to measure its success in terms of number of followers? Is yes. it going to be in terms of revenue? Is it which Spider-Man character looks more powerful when they're... <laughs> Tweeting them, threading them out. I don't yeah, know. What's absolutely. the verb for threads anyway? Yes, still hunting for that one. Uh, right. Uh, so, uh, an interesting point for discussion, but we should look ahead to the batch of UK jobs data that's coming out uh, later on this morning. It will be crucial in determining the Bank of England's next policy decision in August. And so, joining us now is Jamie Rush, Bloomberg Economics's chief European economist. Jamie, good to have you with us. So, yesterday we were talking about the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Uh, report with KPMG that the hot labour market in the UK is starting to cool. Do you think that that's going to be reflected in the official numbers that we get out today? Well, I think it's quite encouraging that it, that, that, that report is showing a cooling and it has been ongoing for, for quite a while now. Um, and even in the official data, when you look at vacancy ratios, uh, you can see that that's that that's been that's been cooling off for for quite a few months now. So I think the labour market has turned. Um, it's going to take some time to be reflected in in the in the measures that that Andrew Bailey and his and his colleagues on the Monetary Policy Committee care about most, which is core inflation and and wage growth. So I, I don't think we're going to see too much sign yet uh, of that in, in today's official numbers for, for wages. But uh, as I say, I, I do think it's encouraging that those reports which refer to people who are switching jobs, which is one of the leading indicators for the labour market, um, are starting to cool off uh, relatively substantially. Because we had positive, optimistic words from the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey last night, but then we actually had the British Retail Consortium figures on shop price inflation as well overnight, moving in the wrong direction, especially for food price inflation. So what does this mean for the Bank of England's meeting in August? Do you reckon it's going to be a quarter point hike, a half point hike, no hike at all? Um, so so I think for, for a half point hike, there'd have to be seeing things continue to move in the wrong direction because if you think like 50 basis points at this stage of the hiking cycle it's kind of it's a bit of a panicked move it's something that they they did because wage growth core inflation things are moving up not down <coughs> excuse me and i think that that, that we could be wrong of course but i think with that's that's un, relatively unlikely to happen so i actually think they'll go for 25 basis points not 50. um as you say yeah shop price inflation moving in the wrong direction as well I think the Bank of England has some confidence, though, that food price inflation is going to be dropping uh, in in coming months. Mm, okay. What do you make of this point around Jeremy Hunt that he should consider income and wealth taxes? Um, this from another voice that we hear quite regularly on Bloomberg, Sarah Hewin, that this would support the central bank's um, blunt tool, as she puts it, of raising interest rates. I mean, she's not the only one, is she? She's not the only one, Jamie. We've been talking about it on the UK Politics podcast for <laughs> weeks now. In fact, Caroline's been teasing me that it's my hobby horse. What do you reckon? Um, so I, I think it's I think it's right. I mean, I think I mean, fundamentally, fiscal policy has probably been uh, a bit too supportive. Um, but the problem is that it might be right, but it's not going to happen because we have an election coming and no chancellor would raise taxes just ahead of an election. So I, I think um, it's, it's, it's a worthy cause. I think you're right to, to beat the drum, but I, I, I think actually it's, un, it's unlikely. I mean, one other thing is just that fiscal policy, monetary policy, they always tend to be really badly coordinated. So that by the time you've actually got fiscal policy working in the direction that you want it to work, 
it's too late. And I actually think we're probably already, it's already too late for fiscal policy to have a meaningful impact. Interest rates are extremely high. They are going to be squeezing the economy. And by the time fiscal policy starts to bite, uh, you're actually going to be depressing the economy, probably not helping the situation. It could actually be counter-cyclical, uh, sorry, pro-cyclical. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But I, I'm not hopeful that uh, it's going to be effective this time around. Jamie, one last very quick question. Which number are you watching most closely in the jobs data this morning? The private sector wage growth is the one that they'll be, they'll be most focused on. So um, we're hoping that will tick down a touch. Jamie Rush, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's Chief European Economist, thank you so much for your time. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. To geopolitics, Turkey has agreed to support Sweden's NATO bid after months of arduous negotiations. It comes on the eve of a critical two-day NATO summit. Joining us from there is Bloomberg's Europe correspondent Maria Tadeo. Maria, tell us how this deal came about after this year of contentious rhetoric. Yeah, yesterday, the day did not start well. Just to uh, go back to yesterday morning, I know 24 hours in geopolitics is a long time, but it does uh, merit going back to the morning where President Erdogan really took everyone uh, by surprise, almost signaling that his yes to Sweden and NATO was conditioned on talks about the European Union and Turkey, obviously a very difficult at times debate. This took a lot of people by surprise. I spoke with the president of Lithuania who told me, quote, this is the first time I hear about this. Uh, this was a real, real, real shocker in the morning. So it was not clear. It was not a given in any way that this ratification, that this go-ahead would come from President Erdogan. But of course, then you go into the closed meetings behind closed doors with the magic of diplomacy. And now there you have this deal mediated between the Swedish and the Turks by the NATO Secretary General. So now that uh, President Erdogan has dropped the veto, it is almost understood that the Turkish parliament will quickly ratify this bid, and that will be followed by Hungary. Remember, the two have to ratify this uh, bid still, and then things will move very, very fast. When I spoke to the Swedish foreign minister last week, he said as soon as we get the go-ahead from both the parliaments, we will deposit our documents, and then it's up to go. We want to see our flag at the NATO headquarters by the end of the month. So this is the timeline uh, today. Obviously, yesterday, you should have seen the smile on the Swedish prime minister, his face, a lot of relief, certainly, for this country that really felt there was a risk of being stuck in no man's land. But obviously, we know now that is not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, this redraws the NATO map, though. What will it mean? 
Yeah, enormous. It's, it's, it's a really huge uh, change beyond NATO. Just look at Sweden and even Finland. This is a tectonic shift in their position when it comes to Russia and any potential military alliance. Remember, they were non-aligned countries for a very long time. It really changes uh, everything for the Nordics, the Nordic security, the Baltics, uh, too. They always said it is crucial, it is imperative that we have a full NATO bloc in the area. Obviously, it also brings about more spending into the alliance. We know that there is now also a commitment uh, from both countries and new members, Finland and Sweden, to spend more. They obviously have very modern armies, and these are countries that are very connected to Russia. I mean, geographically, for NATO, you could argue, well, at this point, it's, it's a real winner for the alliance. And Maria, we've had the US President Joe Biden here in London yesterday. How much would his pressure have contributed to this change? Look, I think there's a number of elements here. Obviously, the United States plays a huge role because they are the biggest country in NATO. We also know there's ongoing talks over the F-16s, the fighter jets uh, that Turkey wants from the United States. There was also pressure politically, but even when you look at President Erdogan yesterday, he was the star of the show. Uh, you should have seen people asking for pictures, selfies, handshakes. And again, it goes back to this idea, perhaps, that Turkey now, after a very difficult economic period, wants to have have a more normal relationship, perhaps, with allies. For President Erdogan, it also changes the narrative around him. He's gone from almost not going to win the election to a very difficult election campaign to winning and then becoming yesterday almost the hero of the day. It was all about President Erdogan here. So for Turkey, you could look at this. Yes, there are obviously tacit agreements that have been agreed with the Swedish and potentially even the sale and the F-16s, but there's obviously also the political narrative that feeds into Erdogan and this idea, perhaps, that the country now, for the sake of the economy, wants to have more normal ties. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.